Today, we're in Romans chapter 7, and I've asked Todd Terrell, one of our faithful, to read uh, the whole chapter to us. And I'm going to actually ask you to stand with Todd as he reads the scripture in honor and respect of God's word. Please uh, listen along, read along if you like, and uh, hear from God's word. Todd? You are exempt, Dion. Yes, you are. Thanks for being here. For do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. If she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity, through the commandment produced in, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seized an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be known to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what is what I do want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it is no longer who I do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do good. I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, I do not want, but is no longer who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So find it to be the law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law in my inner being, but I see the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself may serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 
Now we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for everything you've done for us and for our brethren today. We also pray for our mission trips coming up, Haiti and also going to New York. We pray for healing in this church, total healing, Lord. We know that this can happen. We thank you for everything you've done for us. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Todd. You can be seated. Summer brings a lot of things. Summer brings vacations. Summer brings heat. And in the BB household, it actually brings birthday season. Birthday season. We had one uh, this last Friday. And actually, uh, it's birthday season because my birthday is May. Uh, my six-year-old just turned six. Uh, Campbell is in June. Elizabeth's birthday is July. And then Braxton and Truett are both August. So when I say birthday season, that's what I mean. May through August, we are celebrating birthdays. And so the grandparents are here today. Friday, we had uh, the party for Campbell as she turned uh, six, year old, six years old. And uh, what is the highlight of a child's party? The gifts, right? Yeah, cake, a close second, though. Good, good guess. Yeah, the gifts. Uh, mommy and Daddy, let's invite more people because that means more gifts, right? Uh, and, uh, and you guys are too generous and grandparents are too generous. My daughter now has more uh, play jewelry stuff, more princess dresses, more dolls than she's ever going to use, right? Uh, it's amazing. She's totally spoiled. Gifts, that's what we look forward to. Uh, particularly our children look forward to as we celebrate their birthday. Oftentimes, as we talk about the Christian faith and we talk about salvation, we describe it as a gift. And we say it is a gift. And what I want to illustrate for you this morning is that the gift of salvation, Christianity, is actually a very complex gift. In fact, there's more than just one gift. Uh, as you open up the gift of salvation, and it is a gift, we find that God has given us more uh, than just forgiveness. More than just saving us from our sins, in fact. There's more to this gift. Romans 6.23, uh, popular verse from Romans. Last week we ended uh, the end of chapter 6. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And often you will hear evangelists, often you have heard me describe salvation, describe the Christian faith as a gift. And what do you have to do to receive a gift? Nothing. By nature, it's, it's gift. It's free. You just take it, right? Now, for my six-year-old, she had to be born. I mean, it is, it's, it's not exactly a, a great parallel because she, she did something. She was born. But nevertheless, she got a gift, right? A free gift. She didn't pay for it. That is true about salvation. It is a free gift. All we have to do is receive it. We can't pay for it. Campbell didn't buy those princess dresses. She didn't in any way earn those, but they were given to her free. She paid nothing for them. Salvation, Christianity, is a free gift. But what I want to convince us of this morning and demonstrate from the scripture is it is, it is, it is more than just the gift of forgiveness. In fact, this gift of salvation uh, does have forgiveness, but as we open up the gift of salvation, as we experience God's gift, there's more than just forgiveness. There's also, we talked about this a little bit last week, there's also adoption. 
As we receive the gift of salvation, God doesn't just forgive us, but he, he, he joins us to his family. We become adopted sons and daughters, so that is another gift of salvation, not just forgiveness, but adoption. And because we're sons and, and daughters of God, we also get, as a gift from God, a new family. Not our biological family, but our spiritual family, that by which we can grow up in the faith into this new family, the body of Christ, the church, is another gift that God gives us in salvation. But that's not all. Not only does God forgive us, not only does he put us in a new family, not only does he adopt us as sons and daughters, but also the gift of salvation comes with, can you see this, power. We don't just get a ticket to heaven, as I said last week, but we get new power. In fact, Romans chapter 6 and 7 talk about how the power of sin and death, the, the chains of sin that once bound us have been broken. So that now that we received this gift of salvation, we receive Christ, we have a new power that we did not have before. Because the power of sin has been defeated in our lives through what Jesus has done for us, and that power comes most specifically through Holy Spirit, right? As we open up the gift of salvation, the third person of the Trinity, Holy Spirit, comes to indwell us, to walk beside us as our helper and guide. So we receive this gift, and we also receive adoption. We also receive power. We also receive the presence of God the Holy Spirit constantly at work in our lives. There's two big words that Paul uses and that theologians often use to talk about these aspects of salvation, and we've talked about one of them extensively, and that is justification. The gift of salvation involves justification, and justification means being made righteous before God. That's what Paul has been talking about in Romans chapter chapters 1 through 5, primarily justification, being made right with God, our position so that now we are sons and daughters. And oftentimes when we talk about the gift of salvation, we stop at justification. But there's more to this gift of salvation than just justification. This gift of salvation, as we, as we receive it, we also get the gift of sanctification. And sanctification is, is Paul's primary topic in chapters 6 through 8. And sanctification means Becoming like God in practice. Becoming like God in practice. So I can summarize it like this. Salvation is more about transformation than a transaction. Okay? Salvation is more about a transformation than a transaction. It's not a commercial relationship, but it's a personal relationship. And God is transforming us through sanctification so that we become like Jesus. That's a part of the gift. We didn't just get saved and get a ticket to hell and now we're on our way to heaven. We got power. We got the Holy Spirit. And, and God is working through his power, through the Holy Spirit, to transform us. This summer with our kids, we've been working through a thing called the New City Catechism. And we're going to start using this as a, as a church. Uh, but a catechism is a way of teaching Christian truth. And uh, there's, it's a question-answer format. In fact, our Adult Bible Fellowship is going to begin a study in a few weeks of this new city catechism. And we've been using it with our children and trying to memorize it uh, ourselves as mom and dad. But the new city catechism talks about this, this distinction between justification and sanctification, and it defines it. And you can also get this new city catechism as a free app 
by the way, so you'll want to download that after church, okay? Uh, but question 32, the New City Catechism says this, what do justification and sanctification mean? And the answer goes like this, justification means our declared righteousness before God, made possible by Christ, Christ's death and resurrection for us. Sanctification means our gradual growing righteousness made possible by the Spirit's work in us. We are not only being declared righteous, but we are being made righteous in practice through this thing called sanctification. Okay? And that's Paul's main point in Romans chapter 6, all the way through Romans chapter 8. And as we get to chapter 7 today, he's answering some objections, okay, that he anticipates from his audience. And we've looked at some of these in the past. There's actually four objections in Romans 6 and 7, okay? The first objection begins back in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. He hears this, he, he anticipates this objection. Because, because salvation is all of grace, because it's a free gift, the question becomes, are we to continue in sin that grace may, may abound? Hey, if salvation is all of grace, is all of God, then why don't I just continue to sin? He answers that question. We've talked about that in weeks past. Uh, verse 15, are we to sin because we are no longer under the law, but under grace? We touched on that one this week. And today, as we come to verse 7, he says, what shall we say then, that the law is sin? The law, this, and he means here particularly the Mosaic law, these commandments in our Old Testament that the Jews knew inside and out, and, and some of the church in Rome was like, don't we have this salvation by grace through faith, but don't we still need to keep the law and keep these holy days and do these ceremonial acts? And, and the question becomes, well, if salvation is all of grace, then does that mean that that old thing about the law, does that mean that the, that the law is sin? And he answers this question by saying, may it never be. May genitoi. May it never be. And so he's talking primarily in chapter 7 here about the, the use of the law. What good is the law for? And he doesn't want these, this church, he doesn't want this Roman church to think that the law is bad. He wants them to know that it's good. So if you look there uh, in verse 12, Romans 7, verse 12, it says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Sometimes I hear people, uh, Christians talk about the law or talk about the Old Testament and they kind of like, it's a, such a drag. There's 613 commandments and ooh, it's bad. That was good. God was letting his people know, this is what I'm like. This is how you should live. And that's a good thing. The law is good and holy and righteous. And if you look down at verse 13, he also describes the law there as good again. And in verse 14, he, he describes the law as spiritual. So, if we're saved by grace, does that mean that the law is bad? No. The law is good, holy, and righteous. But what we learn here in other places, that the, though the law is good, the law is also powerless to change us. Just by knowing the law, just by knowing God's nature and God's will is not enough to change our hearts. We need something more. And that's where Holy Spirit and the power that God has given us through his death, through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we have a new power, and we have a new resource in the Holy Spirit by which to walk in obedience to God. Okay, but the law itself is good. One, the other, uh, let me take you back to the New City Catechism. Question uh, number 15 this time. 
This is the, the question with followed by an answer. And by the way, if you want to teach your kids this, the app has songs by which they can learn the answers to these questions. It gives them a memory verse to go with the answer that's based on the Bible. So listen to question 15 of the New City Catechism. Since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? We should have a picture of this. Uh, since, since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? Answer, that we may know the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of our hearts, and thus our need for a Savior. That's the purpose of the law. Look again at verse 7. Verse 7 says, I would not have known, uh, yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. What is he saying? The law brings knowledge of sin. It, it gives us the knowledge of God's nature and the knowledge of God's will, but it also gives us knowledge of sin. And the example he used there is covetousness. Now that we read in the law, now that the Jews saw that, hey, man, I'm not supposed to covet, they, inside them, the law is like a flashlight shining on their hearts. It's like, ooh, don't covet. I covet all the time. I covet what my neighbors have. I covet what I see every time I go out to the mall and shop or I go in this certain store, I'm always coveting. And the law brings knowledge. It's like a flashlight that shines in the recesses of our hearts that shows us our sinfulness. And it not only shines that flashlight on it, but it also in some ways arouses the sin that's already within us. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin is dead. The very covenant, verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proves death to me. What he's saying here is as I, as I read the law, as I knew the law, it, it aroused in me the sin that was already there. Example, any of you uh, been out to the Dallas Arboretum lately or someplace like that? Uh, this is what happens to me every time I go to the Dallas Arboretum and they have those signs in some parts of the areas where the grass is just plush and they have this little sign that says, do not get in the grass. And what do I want to do every time I walk by that sign? Just go over there and do a snow angel in the grass. I just want to take a nap. Why? Because the sign says, don't walk on the grass. And what does it do in me? It arouses this rebellion in me and this, this desire that had the sign not been there, I'm like, you know, I'm, but because it says I can't, I want to. Some of you are nodding your heads and some of you are like, I would never do that because you're a rule follower. But often what the law does is it arouses in us, that might not be the answer for you, but it arouses in us what was already there by nature in a sense arouses or magnifies sin. We've mentioned this one several times before, but Romans 3, chapter 19 and 20, flip back there. Romans 3, also a great, quick answer for the function or the use of God's law. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 says this, For we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What is Romans chapter 3 saying? Similar to what Paul has said in Romans chapter 7. That no one's going to be justified by the law, but the law 
have shut every mouth. Because we have the law, we, we shut our mouth. No more excuses. You're guilty. You have knowledge of what God wants and you don't live up to it. Therefore, shut your mouth, case closed, guilty. We all stand accountable before God, according to verse 19, because of the law. Verse 20, the law brings knowledge of sin. It's not bad, but it's powerless. It gives us this knowledge without a power from which to change. It can't, the law on its own, the commandments of God, can neither justify us nor sanctify us. Did you follow me there? The law can neither justify us, keeping it, and therefore justify ourselves, become right with God, nor can the law by itself sanctify us because it has no power. It points to perfection. It shows us the way, but it has no power by which to help us go the right way. Anybody bought anything uh, from Ikea lately? No, you're all Nebraska Furniture Mart type people. <laughs> Ikea. What do you get when you go to Ikea besides junk? Just kidding. Uh, what do you get when you go to Ikea? Just, we have all sorts of Ikea. I love it. You get a box that it comes in, and then you get this big white paper. And what is the, what is the white piece of paper folded up about 40 times? Yep. It's the instructions. Thank you, Jason. It is the instructions to how to put together this 100,000 parts, right? With pictures, and it's, it, there, there's not even any English in there. It's just pictures, but it is the instructions. It is the law. It is the map, if you will, of here's how this thing works. Now figure it out. Now, I've, I've received those instructions sometimes, and, and they're wrong. Like, there's a mistake in there. They're missing something. But let's just pretend for a moment that Ikea has gotten it right, and it's perfectly right. What we have in the law of God is perfection. This is how you do it. And even on the Ikea map, sometimes you have these insets where it's got this square, and it's got this guy doing it wrong, and it's got a big X through it. Like, don't do this. You'll mess up the whole thing, and you'll spend three hours taking everything apart and putting it back together again. But if you follow these instructions... It will work out, right? Elizabeth gets it on the first try, takes me long. It is a map, it is instructions, it is the law, but it is powerless to just kind of put the thing together for me. So, what do I want? Being the man that I am, I want not the instructions, I want some dude from IKEA to follow me home and pull everything out and put it together for me. That would be a lot better, wouldn't it? Now, don't take the illustration too far, but listen to me closely. God has given us instructions. He's given us a map, and that map shows us how far off we are. It shows us how far we have to go. It shows us where we mess up. It shows us how to get back right. But it is powerless to live a life pleasing to God by itself. But what we have in salvation, as a part of this salvation gift, what we have is not just instructions, not just a map, not just a, a, a detailed uh, description of how to put together. What we have in this gift of salvation is the power of the Holy Spirit saying, I will come along 
as your expert helper, as your expert counselor, and guide you in putting this life together the way it's supposed to be. Sometimes we present salvation as this exchange. Hey, you want a gift? Here it is. All you have to receive. All you have to do is receive it. It's a transaction. And it is. That's true. It is a free gift. But as you open up the gift of salvation, it's not just justification, but it's sanctification. And the power that you have is the power of God himself working in you to break through the past, to break through your sin, to break through your hurts, your hang-ups, your addictions, to be able to walk in the way of Christ. That is the gift of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just save us and say, now go on about your business and figure it out. Be sure to consult the instructions. He says, no, I am giving you the power. I am giving you the guide of the Holy Spirit to walk, as Romans 6 says, in the newness of life. I am not just forgiving you, but I am transforming you, not on your own power, but by the power of God himself, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the question is, and again, we're at a very light, very high level here of Romans 6 and 7. So the question becomes, how does that work? So what do I do? I've got the instructions and I've got the Holy Spirit. I've got this new power, this divine power uh, through Holy Spirit who is guiding me and leading me. What does that look like? How does that work day to day in following the Holy Spirit? Chapter 7, verse 6 says, we walk now, we serve now in the new way of the Spirit. What does that look like? Well, again, at a very high level in Romans 6 and 7, there's three, at least three key words that stand out to me as to how we push into this. Or you might say, depend upon the Holy Spirit to do this. Here's the three words. The three words are, there's something we have to know Right? Over and over, the word know or consider is repeated in chapter 6 and 7. There's something, there's some things we have to know. And then the other repeated words are present or offer. Depending upon your translation, it says present ourselves or present our members as instruments of righteousness or present ourselves to God. So there's some knowledge we have to have. And that knowledge, if you look through chapter 6 and 7, and again, high level here, that knowledge is that. You have now, when you've received salvation, you have become united with Christ. Like you are spiritually united with him. You died with him and you are now resurrected with him in new life. That's something that you have to know. You know that expression, you know, we don't know what we don't know, right? And if you, you may have been a Christian for years and years and, and you've just kind of been taught, hey, you received a gift and now you've got a ticket to heaven, but you've got more than a ticket to heaven. You've got the Holy Spirit at work in your heart to transform you. So that's something you have to know, that you're not united with Christ. The passage goes on. It talks about how we've died to sin. What in the world does that mean? There's been dissertations written on that. But died to sin, I take it to mean that the power that sin had on us, sin no longer has. The Emancipation Proclamation has been proclaimed, and now we can walk out free. Now, a lot of us stay in our chains because we don't know that power. So there's some things that we have to know about how we've died to sin, about how we're united with Christ, about how Holy Spirit 
resides within us and we can we have his power now there's some things we have to know but there's also those key words present or offer ourselves it's repeated over and over over 613 619 620 this idea of offering yourselves or presenting yourselves to god what does that look like day to day if i don't rely on the law if i don't rely on the instructions what does that look like day to day to know and to present myself before god Best illustration I've ever heard of this, stealing it from a guy named John Ortberg. Some of you have heard this before. John Ortberg gives three word pictures about how this looks, how this looks to present or offer our lives to God. Three pictures. First picture being a raft, second picture being a rowboat, and third picture being a sailboat. Hey, what does it look like to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in, in being transformed? First word picture, faulty word picture, is the idea of a raft. Hey, I'm saved. I've got this gift. Now I just get in the raft, kick back, you know, have a cool drink, kick my feet up, and the, the current of the river is just going to take me. This is the idea you hear people say, like, just let go and let God. And there's a proper place for let go and let God. But in terms of being transformed, let go and let God. You're saved. Now just get in the raft, be totally passive, and let God do the rest. Raft. I think that's a faulty way of thinking about your cooperation now with the Holy Spirit who lives in you. That's complete passivity. Second faulty way of thinking about it, though, is not the raft, but the rowboat. And what happens when you get in the rowboat? Both arms working. This is the picture of complete activity. All right? Hey, I'm saved and God's got me in a boat. It's a boat called salvation and it's a boat headed to heaven. But what I got to do to be transformed and to become like Jesus is just row like crazy because there's some crazy currents coming at me, and I got some baggage and some sin, and I just better work hard. And if that's complete passivity, the rowboat is complete activity. It all depends upon me. And Ortberg suggests, and I love his, his thoughts here and his ideas, that the better picture of our cooperation with the Spirit is the sailboat. Now, I'm not a sailor, but what happens in the sailboat? There is both activity as well as dependence, right? There's some things for you to do. You set sail to catch the wind, but guess what? If no wind comes, you are just sitting there as still as you can be, just like Tommy Boy, if you've ever seen that movie, okay? Just sitting there. It's a still like you're going nowhere, dependent upon the wind. So there is some activity involved, but there is also dependence, you are presenting yourselves. You are offering yourself to God and saying, God, move. God, change me. Here I am, but I am dependent upon you. Active dependence. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Look there with me. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I couldn't resist turning to 2 Corinthians 3.18 here, because this says it in summary for, it, for us, right? What is happening here? Transformation. Not just forgiveness, but transformation. And this happens as we behold the glory of the Lord. I take that to mean that we're, we have our faces in Scripture, and we're considering Jesus Christ. We're hearing the Word preached. We're singing together. We're beholding the glory of the Lord, and as we do that, that's setting the sail, 
We are being transformed from one image of glory to, the, uh, to another. God is recreating us in the image of Christ. And how does this happen? Last line. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We're beholding the glory of the Lord. We're setting the sail. But this happens by the Spirit. So another place you might want to just jot this down, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, Paul is talking about this similar thing. And he says, hey, you guys have gotten off course here. Having begun by the Spirit of God, are you now being perfected by the works of the law? He says, no. You still are dependent upon the Spirit. You're never going to rowboat your way to transformation. But you do have a responsibility to behold the glory of the Lord, to show up, to avail yourself, if you will. So I gave you these real quickly last week. I'm going to repeat them today. How do we present ourselves to God? What does that look like? Three A words, okay? Availability, acknowledgement, and activity. We present ourselves. We offer ourselves to God. God, I'm here. Change me. Use me. I'm not just showing up to Bible study to be seen by other guys, but God, I'm here. Bring your wind and catch this sail. I'm here. I'm available. But also an acknowledgement, God, I'm needy. I'm too tired to oar. But I'm setting this sail, God, I'm needy. I need your Holy Spirit. And there are some activities. There are some practices. There are some tools. We'll talk about those in just a second. But availability, acknowledgement, and activity. Got an illustration of this last Friday um, with Elizabeth, but before that, but before that last Friday, back up about a month ago. About a month ago, Elizabeth came home, uh, or I came home from work, and Elizabeth, I walked in and she said, "Honey, I just I love you. You are so good to me. You always have the car filled up with gas, and I never have to worry about it. You just always go to the gas station, so my tank is always full. That means so much to me. Thank you so much. You are such a good man." She's I mean, just, just on and on. Just kidding. Um, but she said, but you know what? Today I was out with Katie and I ran out of gas because I didn't even look at it. And thankfully there was this guy across the street that saw these two gals and I had Truett in the back. And so thankfully he pushed my car over to 7-Eleven and I got, I got gas. But honey, thank you for always looking out for my gas tank. Fast forward about four weeks less Friday night. I get this call about 5.30 from Elizabeth. Honey, I was on my way to Costco, but I'm out of gas. Again? So what do I do? I take my gallon tank from the garage. I get the kid, the neighbors to watch the kids, and I take her some gas over on El Dorado where she's parked along the side out of gas a second time. And we have a great car. Yeah, I mean, Honda Pilot 2003, 2005, whatever. It got some hail damage a few months ago. It is a great car. It's got all the seats we need for our three kids. It's handy. We love it. But guess what? It does require gas. Now, she's at home with one of the sick kids today, so you know why I'm using this illustration. Just kidding, I asked her permission, okay? It's a great car, but it requires fuel. We have been given salvation, justified before God, and He is sanctifying us. And we have the power of Holy Spirit working within us to change us. But we do have to show up at the tank 
and get some fuel. We do have a responsibility to raise the sail. We are called by Scripture to actively depend, but to present ourselves, to offer ourselves to God and say, God, I'm weak, but I'm here because I need some fuel. Refuel me. And hopefully you're here this morning because you know you don't have the power to rowboat this thing by yourself. And there are some things like corporate worship and the body of Christ, the fellowship with one another, the word of God, singing to one another with psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, prayer. There are these things, there are these activities, and I return back to activity, that God has given us. Theologians call them the ordinary means of grace. Follow me there. Ordinary. Ordinary. We like, I like extraordinary. I like fast. I like easy. I like convenient. These are traditionally, historically called the ordinary means of grace. And you know what that implies? That implies that gathering with God's people, that reading God's word, that approaching God in prayer, that showing up for Bible study or for community group is an ordinary means of grace that God uses in extraordinary ways to slowly transform us. You can't just get in the raft and expect transformation. But if you raise the sail, God has promised this work of salvation is not just forgiving us, but also transforming us. And I bet this morning as we're talking here, for everybody in this room, God may have placed something on your heart that says, you know what? I know when I raise this sail, God's spirit often sends wind. So what is it? What is that offering? What is that thing that you need to present yourself to God by which he uses that activity, those tools, not your power, but your availability, your acknowledgement of weakness, that you need to offer yourself to the Lord? Some of us are probably sitting here this morning and are thinking, you know what? It's been days. No, it's been weeks since I've opened up God's Word. I'm running on fumes. That is an ordinary means of grace. Some of you are like, you know, I, I, I come and I sit here for an hour and 15 minutes, but I need to push into some fellowship to offer myself. I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit who lives inside each of us is strong enough in our lives, to right now where you are, to convict you, and to challenge you, and to encourage you, what sail do you need to raise? It's not going to be the same for each of us. You know what a sail, I've realized lately, a sail that I have to raise to really be better in, in touch with God and with others? It's called sleep. Good sleep. Because nobody needs a grouchy, 
grumpy pastor, tired pastor, tired husband, tired dad. But I think in, in some way that is just an ordinary, common means of grace. And I know that when I'm not listening to music that has the Word of God, when I'm not in the Word of God, that I sense it. And so I want to ask you to bow your heads right now and to just ask Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, how can I cooperate with you today? How can I cooperate with you this week? To offer myself to you and watch you, Holy Spirit, transform. Would you give that a moment of thought and then I'll close us in prayer? Father God, we thank you that in this big, huge gift, this big, enormous, eternal gift of salvation, you have not only forgiven us and left us on our own, but you have given us power. You have given us a family, an adopted family. You have given us yourself and the Spirit of God to work in our hearts, to walk with us every day and to convict us and to empower us. So, Father, we offer ourselves, we present ourselves to you this morning in whatever specific ways have just been thought of. We raise our sail and ask you, Holy Spirit, to come and invade our lives and to transform us with one degree of glory to another into the image of Jesus Christ, your Son and our brother. Holy Spirit, move in our hearts, move in our church body. Help us to seek you, cooperate with you, present ourselves to you. In the beautiful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There